Well, good morning. How are you today? Everyone ready for Thanksgiving? All right. It's going to be good. I'm frying the turkey this year, and when I say me, I mean my brother-in-law, Brandon. I'll be eating it. He'll be doing the work, and um, I do like to cook, by the way. That is one of my skills. If you need me to fix anything, call someone else. Um, Today's message, I, I just want you to know that at the beginning, I'm not trying to depress you, okay? But I do need us to understand this morning that there's a reality to what we're going to talk about today that some of us are going to try and push away and others of us will be like, yeah, you're talking about real life. So I just want to encourage you this morning not to push it away. One of the thoughts that I think that we have a lot in life is simply this. Life should not be this way. Have you ever thought that before? Life should not be this way. On Tuesday of this week, my children and my wife had to do something at their school that I never had to do when I was in first grade, fourth grade, or sixth grade. They had an intruder drill. Five-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 16-year-olds had to practice what they would do if someone came into their school with the intent to harm them. Life should not be this way. Over the last week in California, two separate wildfires have killed over 70 people and destroyed over 9,000 homes. Over 2,000 acres have been burned up. The 2018 Atlantic hurricane season has caused over $32 billion in damage. $32 billion in damage. And 154 people have lost their lives. Life should not be this way. In 2018, this year alone, an estimated 1.7 new cases of cancer will be diagnosed in the United States, and over 600,000 people have died and will die this year alone from cancer. In my tenure as a pastor and as a dad, I have made numerous trips to the children's hospitals in our region And every time I walk the hallways of A.I. DuPont Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware, or Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Center City, I am jolted by the reality of how hard and unfair life is for the youngest and the most vulnerable among us. Children should be on playgrounds, not on heart transplant lists and operating tables. Life should not be this way. And of course, you have your own life should not be this way moments as well. Many of us have stood over the caskets of our loved ones who didn't get a long life and we never got to say goodbye. Some of us have sat in the offices of our attorneys to sign divorce papers. Some of us have been on the receiving end of a diagnosis we weren't ready for. Some of us have had careers that have been derailed by downsizing or bosses who are out to get us. Some of us have laid in bed pleading with God to bring a child home who has wandered from him. Some of us have battled depression and we wonder if we're ever going to see the sun again because every day is rainy. Some of us have been abused physically emotionally, spiritually, sexually, by people we trusted. And we live with those scars. And hands down, the number one problem in each of our lives, the number one problem in your life and the number one problem in my life is by far my own sinfulness, your own sinfulness. If you really think about it, it's our own actions that have most often been the root cause of the thought 
life should not be this way. There are some people who think that the Christian message is that if you put your faith in Jesus, life is suddenly marked by ease, comfort, perfect health, a full bank account, and victory upon victory. Some people want you to believe that if the Christian life is lived just right and your faith is exercised with precision, you can avoid every heartache and trial that comes with being a fallen human being living on a fallen earth. I just want you to know that real Christians get cancer. Real Christians have to have surgery even after they prayed for healing. Real Christians lose their job, struggle financially, have difficult seasons in their marriage, wrestle with doubt, wrestle with depression, and sometimes feel very defeated. So here's a question. We're in this series called How to Face Life with Confidence, and it seems like the beginning of this message is an advertisement for you not to be confident. How are we? Supposed to face life with confidence in the face of so much suffering. How are we supposed to do that? That's the question the Apostle Paul answers as we continue our journey in Romans 8. Starting in verse 18, listen to what Paul says. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Here's what I want you to know today, and if you don't learn anything else today, learn this. Our present reality is not our future reality. Paul is fully aware that God's people go through times of suffering, and he says that our sufferings are present. And he's not just saying they were present 2,000 years ago when he wrote the letter to the Roman church. He means that they're an ongoing presence in our life. Suffering is an ongoing presence. You know that. It snowed in November. You understand that the world is broken. You get that. However, suffering does not have the final word. And that's the hope this morning. Suffering does not have the final word in the lives of God's people. Here is what our future is, Connection Church. Glory. Glory is in your future, and glory is in my future. Now, let's be honest. When we hear the word, the glory that will be revealed in us, we're like, that sounds cool. I have no idea what that means. That's like the churchiest, churchy thing you've ever heard. But let me tell you what it means because it's awesome. In the Old Testament, the word glory meant weight, like it meant heaviness. And it referred to the majesty and greatness of God's presence, Glory is our coming reality. Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is already in glory. And our future, our future, not our present sufferings, but our future reality is to be in this state of glory, which really means to be forever in the presence of God. That's why Paul has the boldness to say to people who have cancer, to say to people who lost their homes in a natural disaster, to say to people in Northern California whose homes are literally burning now. He has the audacity, the boldness to say to people who love Jesus, whatever suffering you're facing today, no matter how bad it is, it's not going to hold the candle to glory. Have you ever thought about your suffering in the context of 10,000 years from right this minute? 
like, I'm not saying that your suffering doesn't matter. I'm not saying that the diagnosis isn't real. I'm not saying that the child is not prodigal. I'm not saying that those aches and pains you have in your body, I just like, oh, you're a Christian, don't worry about them. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that your pain, whether physical, spiritual, emotional, your pain, how big will it seem in 10,000 years from today? Have you ever thought about where we're going to be in 10,000 years? Like, none of us are going to be here in 100 years, except maybe the, the baby, all right? Maybe just if you're a baby in the room, you might be here in 100 years, maybe. But you're not going to be. I'm not going to be. We have a shelf life. And do you know that 10,000 years from now, you will look back at your pain, and what will you say? What will you say? Here's what you're going to say. Whatever I suffered 10,000 years ago, the weight of that is not compared to the weight of living forever in the presence of God. The weight of your pain does not compare to the weight of glory. Our present reality is not our future reality. And Paul says that even the creation itself knows this. Listen to what he says in Romans 8, 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. So here's what Paul is saying. When Paul talks about creation, here's what he's talking about. Mountains, rivers, lakes, oceans, the solar system, weather patterns, volcanoes, trees, flowers, animals, creation. And Paul says that creation is waiting in eager expectation for what? The sons of God to be revealed. So here's the word picture of eager expectation. Okay, so it means to stretch out the head. So have you ever been to the airport waiting for someone you love? Raise your hand. You've done that. You've been at the airport waiting for someone you love. And you know that moment when you're waiting for them to kind of come down the corridor of the hallway. You're like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen them in so long. Or maybe your wife's been away for like 24 hours and you're like, oh my gosh, please come back. I was a father by myself for 24 hours and the kids... They went to bed at 4.30, please come home. Okay, so you're like stretching out your head. And you are looking down the corridor of the airport in eager expectation of your loved one's return. Creation is stretching out its head. And it's looking into the future. And here's what creation is waiting for. The sons of God to be revealed. Even God's creation is anticipating your glorious future. But creation is not just anticipating our bright future. Catch this. Creation is anticipating its own bright future. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8 verses 20 and 21. He says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated, will be set free from its bondage or its slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Catch this. Creation's present reality is not creation's future reality either. So here's what you need to know about creation. Creation is in a state of frustration. Creation is saying along with us this morning when we look at the world, this is not how it's supposed to be. So it's frustrated and it has been subjected to frustration. And you're like, well, who subjected the creation to frustration? God did. God did. How do I know God did it? Because it was subjected in hope. So Satan did not subject the creation in hope. 
Adam and Eve didn't subject the creation in hope. God did. So here's the thing that a lot of us kind of struggle with in our faith. A lot of us think that it's sort of ridiculous, and you're not going to admit this in church, but you'll admit it to your friend over coffee, okay? So you're not going to admit it here, but you'll admit it privately in the quiet. You think it's sort of stupid. Not all of you, but many of you think it's sort of stupid that all of the problems we have in the world go back to the moment when a man and a woman ate a piece of fruit that they shouldn't have. Like, I'm just, like, you actually think that's ridiculous. Some of you are like, that's intellectually weird. One piece of fruit, wildfires in Northern California, hurricanes, cancer, one piece of fruit, that's kind of stupid. You're explaining why everything is wrong in the world because of a piece of fruit? Christians, you're wildly short-sighted. That's putting it nicely. See, here's the problem. If you only think that all the problems in the world are in the world because of a piece of fruit, you're not seeing it clearly. See, Adam and Eve, when they chose to take the piece of fruit, and many of us think it's an apple, and then we do all these kind of things with uh, Apple computers and be like, see that bite out of it? That's a, it's, we don't know if it was an apple, yo. Okay? Probably wasn't. Could have been anything. Okay? It was a piece of fruit. That's all the scriptures say. But in that moment of eating the fruit, what are Adam and Eve really doing? They are choosing personal autonomy over God's loving authority. They are choosing personal autonomy over God's loving authority. See, you think the problem with your children is that they don't listen to you because you don't have the perfect parenting techniques. The reason your children don't want to listen to you is because they are just like you. They love personal autonomy. They're born with a bent to do what they want. Raise your hand if you love people telling you what to do. No one. Even if you're nice and sweet and everyone thinks you're the nicest person that they have ever met, you hate it too. We hate authority. That's why we have so many problems with our bosses, with our parents, with our pastors. Ooh, wow, wait, sorry, not them. We love spiritual authority, but all the other authority, no. No, here's the biggest issue in your life and my life. Here explains all of the reason that your life is the way it is. You don't want God's authority over your life, and you're always resisting it, even if you say you do. Even if you say you do. And so what happened is, is when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it wasn't just like, boom, an apple, let's ruin the world. It was this. Living for myself is far better than living for God. And what happened is, is when that kind of attitude, that kind of heart condition, that is what has impacted the world. What has infected the world is the heart condition, I want to rule my life. And it has not only infected humanity, it has infected creation itself with death and decay, just like you and I have been infected with death and decay. Creation is an amazing place, isn't it? Filled with magnificent beauty and unparalleled splendor. Think about the most beautiful place you've ever been. 
My wife and I once got to take a trip to Lake Tahoe, Nevada, and it was amazing. Lake Tahoe is probably the most beautiful place I've ever been. I got to do a wedding overlooking Lake Tahoe on a cliff in a house that probably cost $29 bazillion. It was amazing. And I looked out over Lake Tahoe, and I just could not believe the beauty that God has created. You can think of the beautiful places you've been to, but here's the thing. Even though creation is filled with unparalleled beauty, it's also a killer. Creation is deadly. It is destructive. Hence, wildfires, hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, droughts, and famines. As Paul says, it was subjected to frustration. God is the one who did this. We know that because it was subjected to frustration in hope that one day it would be liberated. It would be set free from an endless cycle of death and decay. Creation is waiting for its redemption. Creation is waiting for redemption. Creation has a painful present, but a glorious future. And one day, God will set creation free, and it will become perfect again, no longer infected by death and sin. But for now, creation is waiting. And that's why Paul says in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, yearning, as in the pains of childbirth. Ladies, that brings back some memories for us. This is what creation is doing. Creation is like a woman in labor. Have you ever seen that? What does that look like? It looks stressful. It looks painful. It looks incredibly difficult. It's groaning. The pain of delivery. The pain of labor. That's what creation is doing. But here's the thing about being in labor. It's worth it, right? Because when, it's in, when you're in labor, you know that the joy is coming. You know that you will hold the newest member of your family in just a few short hours or not so short hours. See, even creation knows that redemption looms, but for now it's in distress like a woman in labor. But not only is creation waiting for its redemption, Paul says that we are in the same boat. Listen to what he says in verse 23. He says, not only so, not only is creation groaning, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that means that the Holy Spirit is in God's people. We, don't, we have like all of the Spirit on earth, but this is kind of a weird thing to say, first fruits. What Paul is kind of saying here is that When you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, but it's like a down payment of the Holy Spirit. You haven't experienced all of the benefits there are of the Holy Spirit, which you won't get all the benefits of the Holy Spirit until you're in heaven, right? Like all that the Spirit of God longs to give you and do in you, like that's like we have the first fruits, but we don't have the whole harvest of the Spirit yet. That's kind of what he's saying. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly, As we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's what's true about you and me this morning if you know Jesus. Christians are awaiting redemption. Christians are awaiting redemption. Last week we talked about what it means to be adopted. And the fact is, is that if you have placed your faith in Jesus and surrendered your life to him, you have been adopted into his family. 
If you have given your life to Jesus, you have been adopted into the family of God, and God is your dad. And if you want to know more about that, you can listen to last week's message. However, Paul says something kind of contradictory contradictory to what I said to you last week. He says that we are eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons. So which is it, Paul? Are we adopted or are we waiting for our adoption? The answer to that question is yes. Being a Christian can best be described by holding these two things in tension. The already and the not yet. Already and not yet. We have already been adopted into the family of God. We already have God as our dad. We have already moved from being a slave to fear into a child of God. We already have been written into God's will, and we will receive a big inheritance from our Father. But we have not yet received our inheritance. We are not yet living at our dad's house. We are not yet totally free from all fear. We have not yet realized all of what it means to be adopted. See, our adoptive father, God, has already signed the adoption decree. It is final and it is irrevocable, but we have not yet moved into his house yet. We live in this space on this fallen earth, groaning, groaning for our adoption. God, bring final redemption to my life. We live in the space of already, but not yet. So we wait for all the benefits of being adopted to be in our possession, even though they are legally and rightfully ours right now. When we are finally and fully adopted by God, here's what's going to happen. Our bodies are going to be redeemed. Christians don't simply believe. You may believe this. And if you believe this, it's okay, but I want to kind of expand your vision of what eternity will actually be like. Christians don't simply believe that when you die, your body goes in the ground and your soul floats up to heaven and you spend eternity floating around on the clouds with wings. We don't believe that. We do believe that for a time, we live in this disembodied state, meaning we're going to have a funeral for you someday. Maybe it'll be here. You don't want to think about that, but Paul's asking us to think about that. So we're going to have a funeral. When you have a funeral, a pastor stands up, talks about someone, talks about the hope we have in Christ, and in the front of the stage is usually a casket with someone's body. But that body is lifeless, and the spirit goes to be with Jesus. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord. So it is true that when you die, you go to heaven. However, however, that's not your final state. That's not how you're going to uh, spend glory. We believe that just like Jesus rose from death, those who believe in Jesus will rise from death. And when we rise from death, we are going to get a new, indestructible, immortal, glorified body like Jesus had. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. When Jesus returns, and you're like, Jesus is going to come back? Yep, Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes back, we will rise. We're going to get out of the grave. When your physical body dies, yep, you'll go to be with the Lord, and that's going to be awesome. It'll be better than this, I promise. 
But that's not your final destination. You're going to get a new body. If you're like, are you making that up, Joe? Show me that in the Bible, because that's hard to believe. I, I, I understand. Let's read it. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 43. Listen to how Paul says this to us. This is the New Living Translation. I just love how clear and concise it is. Paul says this, Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, hence graveyards. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised. But they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in, there's our word, glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. Your body's future reality, or present reality, is not your body's future reality. As God's people, our future is exceptionally glorious, good, and beautiful. This is what it means to be, quote-unquote, saved. This is what it means to be a Christian, adopted into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ with the promise of eternity in a new body and a new creation. Revelation says that John the Apostle, who was one of Jesus' closest friends had a vision of what heaven would be like in Revelation chapter 21, and he says this, he said, and I saw coming down a new heavens and, and a new earth. This is the hope we have. This is why we can face life with confidence. Because no matter what life throws at us today, Glory is coming, and we will be fully redeemed. We will be fully adopted. We will see Jesus, and when we see him, we will be like him. You know how Jesus rose from the dead in a physical body? We're going to have a body just like that. That sounds great. Good news, Jesus ate in his glorified body. I'm excited about that in heaven. Hopefully he didn't have to exercise in his glorified body. I'm looking forward to my glorified body because it'll look like I've been doing CrossFit for five years. But all I had to do was put my faith in Jesus. You're like, that sounds like a good deal. It is. You can only face life with confidence if you have a vision beyond your suffering. Suffering has this way of just clouding all of what we see, doesn't it? Like, doesn't it just like when you, when you have even, even if you have like a backache, your whole day, if someone asks you, how was your day, all you can think about is your backache. Suffering tends to dominate us, doesn't it? It dominates our thinking. Great news. Great news. Even on the days that suffering feels overwhelming, there's truth to build your life on. That our present reality is not our future reality. This is the hope we live in. So Paul kind of ends this section talking about hope. Listen to what he says in verse 24. He says, For in this hope, this hope of adoption and redemption, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait. Oh, we love that word. We're good at that, 2018. 
But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We started our time together with an uncomfortable survey of just how difficult and devastating life can be. But where we end is not with despair, but with audacious and profound hope. The Christian life is defined by hope. But the very nature of hope is this. It is only necessary. You should only have hope when we are longing, when we are groaning, when we are yearning for something that we don't have yet. Our hope is not based on a fleeting wish. Like when we say, I hope I get this Christmas gift, or I hope the turkey is done perfectly. Sometimes when we use this word hope, we're not rooting it in anything certain. We're rooting it in our wishes and our desires. That's not Christian hope. Why? Because our hope is rooted in a person. The reason you can have hope is because of a person. Here's why. Here's why you can have hope. The grave is empty. That's the only reason you can have hope. Christians have hope that is reasonable, logical, and totally rational because Jesus Christ was not only crucified for our sins so that we could be forgiven, but he also defeated death in his resurrection. Jesus Christ rose from death. He defeated all suffering. He defeated all diseases. He defeated death. And because Jesus Christ defeated death, we will not be defeated by death. Because the grave is empty, our hope is justified. Because the grave is empty, we can face life, a life that is marked by pain, suffering, heartache, natural disasters, diseases, with a profound confidence. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus means adoption for us and the redemption of our bodies. That's our future and that's why you should be a person of audacious hope. That's why you should circle Romans 8.18 in your Bible. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. I want to close today with a question, but before I ask that question, I want to share these words from the Apostle Peter, which I think just perfectly summarizes this message. I could have just read this and this would have been the message, but you would have gotten home really early. Here's what Peter says. He says, listen to all the themes we covered today. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, now for your 70, 80 years, if God gives them to you, now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Why? Why does God allow the suffering and the trial to pass over my life? These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Like you enduring your suffering, you suffering and keeping your eyes on Jesus, you saying to the Lord God, Lord, I don't want to walk through this. I want this to end. Why did you give me this to walk through? Why did you allow the brokenness of this world to show up at my house? Why? 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 I don't know all the reasons why, but I do know this. God is refining you, and he is showing you where your faith is at. Is that the only reason? No. But God uses suffering to show us where we're at. And then verse 8. Though you have not seen him, though you have not seen Jesus, you love Jesus. Is that true of you this morning? Do you sense that in your spirit? No, I have not seen Jesus, but I love Jesus. And even though you do not see Jesus now, even though we're just sitting in North Coventry, Pennsylvania, at Connection Church, and we'll leave this place and we'll go about our day, even though you do not see him, you believe in Jesus, and you are filled, you are filled even in the face of your trials, even in the face of your suffering, even in the face of things you wish were different even in the face of your losses. You are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? How could anyone be joyful in the face of their suffering? Because you are receiving. You are in the process. In the midst of suffering, you are receiving the end result of your faith and your faith has a purpose. What is it? The salvation of your soul. That is good news. That is our future. That is our future reality, even though our present reality is marked by a lot of hard stuff. So I have one question for you this morning. Don't brush it off. Don't push it aside. Are you living as a hope-filled realist? Are you living as a hope-filled realist? Catch this. We tend to look at the world in a few different ways. Some of us are optimists. You know what optimists do? They always think everything is awesome. We love them. They become our really good friends. And you know what? I love when people are positive. But you know where it's hard to be positive? at the cancer center, at the cardiac unit of the children's hospital. You know what other things people say when they're positive? Hey, how you doing? I'm just living the dream. What does that even mean? What dream? Your dream is to live in a fallen state, in a fallen world? That's the dream? You're not living any dream. Because a lot of times life feels a lot less like in a dream and a lot more like a nightmare. Being positive is wonderful, but sometimes being an optimist fails to take into consideration how much people are suffering. 
And sometimes in our optimism, always trying to be positive, what we end up doing is we never get close to people who are suffering and enter into their pain. We never weep with those who weep because all we ever want to do is be happy because pain scares us. Jesus has something better for you to walk into pain and suffering with other people and to bring hope. Not hope rooted in a positive mental attitude. Not hope in saying just the right things at just the right time. Hope in Jesus Christ alone. To be truly an optimist is to bring Christ into every situation. And then some of us, we're idealists. We think that life is always supposed to be a certain way. My marriage should be this way. My job should be this way. My kids should behave this way. The message should end at this time. We just kind of are always idealizing. Things should be better. Things should be better. Things could be better. We just idealize everything. And what we often end up doing as idealists is spend so much of our life disappointed because what we haven't taken into account in our idealism is that we're dealing with sinners like us. And life does not work perfectly. And you can't master anything on a fallen world. You will fail. You will mess up. Could things be better? Yes. Should we work to make things better? Absolutely. But sometimes what's missing in an idealist heart is hope. Hope is missing. Reality is missing. The reality of how life actually is. Idealists show us that God does have something better for us in a positive way. But sometimes, idealists, what we're missing is the world is broken. And though things should be a certain way, they're often not. And then some of us are just pessimists. Everything is always negative. How's life? Terrible. How you doing? Not good. What do you think you're going to do tomorrow? Be miserable. What's today a good day? It's never been a good day. Who do you love? All these people who are going to fail me. Nothing's ever good. Why? Some of you, you're always complaining. You're complaining about your spouse. You're complaining about your job. You're complaining about your church. You're complaining about uh, your kids. You're complaining about traffic on 422. Everything is always a complaint. Why are you like that? Because the hope is missing. The hope is gone. You've stopped seeing the empty grave. You've stopped seeing that, yeah, there are some reasons to be pessimistic in our day and age. There is a lot of darkness around us. But there's a beautiful light. And if you would just stretch out your head and you would look down the corridor of time and you would see that there is adoption and there is redemption coming for you. Your pessimism can be replaced by hope. Christians should be the most real people on the planet. But realism that is seasoned with hope in Jesus Christ. Will you bring hope to your Thanksgiving table? 
to your family this Thanksgiving? Or are you going to gossip about the other members of your family about how they're failing you? Are you going to bring hope to your workplace? Or are you just going to be another voice complaining about how terrible the boss is? Are you going to bring hope to your marriage? Or are you just going to spend the rest of your life focusing on the flaws of your spouse? Are you going to be a person of hope? Are you going to have hope for your loved ones? Are you going to have hope for our community? Do you have hope for the people that you meet that don't know Jesus? Do you have hope that even though their lives are broken and messy, that you actually believe in the depth of your soul? Oh my goodness, if Jesus got a hold of that life, what he could do. How can you look at life that way? Hope. We are people of hope. And that's better than a political campaign. And that's better than a candidate. And that's better than anything we can muster up in ourselves. Hope doesn't come from here. Hope comes from the empty grave and a glorious Savior who is risen, who has promised to give us a future. And that's who we are, and that's who we will be. I hope you would at least clap for that. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I'm mindful of all my brothers and sisters in this house today who are walking through hard things. Lord, today is not in any way a day to minimize what they're going through. It is a day to put it in perspective. Lord, I pray that in the strong name of Jesus, you would give us a hope-filled realism. We need to be real that our suffering hurts and that we want the pain to go away, but we also need to be real in the sense that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is coming. And Lord, I just ask in the powerful name of Jesus and through the work of the Holy Spirit that you would restore hope in every heart this morning where hope has been lost, where lies are being believed, and where the truth is absent. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break down those walls and you would set people free from pessimism and idealism and an optimism that isn't really actually helpful to hurting people. And I pray, God, that for those who are hurting, that they would lift up their heads and they would look down the corridor of time and they would say with gut-level honesty, today is hard, but there is a day coming when I will be with my dad. And there is a promise that the day will come when every tear will be wiped from our eye. And Lord Jesus, you will do that. And we get to be with you. Lord, I pray in the strong name of Jesus, help us to be people of hope. We need you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen.